Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see all of you here this morning. I want to get you to grab your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 5, if you would, please. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, just to uh, uh, let you know, we are it's our practice just to work through God's Word, and we are in the book of Acts right now. And uh, God is um, using it to just to, to fashion and shape us, not only as individuals, but as a church. And we come to a very well-known text of Scripture in many ways, um, and in other, other ways it's less known because of how it fits into the greater context. So uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, Steve is going to come and he's going to read the passage for us. We'll be standing together as we read God's Word. Acts 5, 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your kindness again, for your word. And Lord, for the privilege of sitting under it. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful singing we have just participated in. Lord, not just because of its sound, but because of the, its, a, its means, Lord, as, as a way that we can bring glory to you, who have done so much on our behalf when we are so undeserving. Now, Lord, would you uh, allow us to be humble before you? Uh, Lord, may our hearts be soft to your word. And Would you have your way with us, Lord, as we often pray, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us now in Jesus' name? We pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, a few weeks ago, um, we had this incredible storm that blew through the Bay Area, and it caused record downpours of rain in many communities. And when, when it rains like that, one of the things that I'm always concerned about is 
Is my house going to be secure? You probably go through the same thing. You're wondering, you know, is the rain going to expose any any cracks in my, you know, in my roof in some way, shape, or form? Is there some way the water is going to travel and get in? It could come through the chimney. It could come through windows. It could come through the exhaust fans, you know, when the rain's going sideways and it hits. And, you know, the, the thing though that we're not necessarily always thinking about is, is the kind of leaks that can come from within. I shared this a little bit with you a few weeks ago, and that was while it was raining outside, I was having trouble inside because my water heater was leaking. Now, we can have leaks in the home in a number of different ways. It can come from our faucets. Um, it can come from our dishwasher. It can come from our, our, our refrigerator that's not working pop- properly. It can be our toilets or washing machines. But in my situation, I had two issues. Issue number one was I had a window that faces west, and the rain was just pummeling that window, and we were getting puddles of water on the windowsill. And the window was closed. It had been closed, and we're just trying to figure out, how is this coming in? And so I went online and looked on YouTube. What could it be? And they're saying, well, clean out the little weeping holes. Maybe it's holding up there and all that kind of stuff. And when I, when I did some, some more kind of interrogation of the whole situation, what I figured out was that the window, although it was closed, had not been closed completely. Those little knobs that go up and down, you know, to close a window, they're there for a reason because they actually make a seal that stops the water from coming in. That's all I had to do to stop the leak. And then the other problem was my water heater. And my water heater was just starting to drip in my garage. Fortunately, it was just in an area where it wasn't damaging other things, but it could have been worse. And I looked online to figure out, you know, what does this mean? And I was looking at all the different things and determined it needs to be replaced. And thankfully, uh, my brother-in-law, Alex, came over and we replaced the water tank. And by we, I mean he replaced the water tank, right? Um, and uh, it was great because I got all the leaks taken care of. Now, I share all that to say we can be concerned about, you know, water coming from the outside, but we also need to be concerned about water from the inside. And, you know, as we've gone through Acts, one of the things that God has already established for his church is that there is going to be opposition, so to speak, coming from the outside. And we've seen that already through the religious leaders who have who have really confronted what has been going on with the gospel and the spread of the gospel in particular. If you remember this man who um, who was this 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 beggar. Right. And he was lame and he was given I might say life in his legs as a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And they were using this man to proclaim the gospel and the resurrection. And the religious leadership didn't like that. And so they wanted to put it down. So it's opposition from the outside. But there's also this possibility of opposition from within. And what we're going to find in our, in our text here is that there can be a neglect uh, for, I want to say, spiritual leakiness within the context of the body of Christ. And friends, that can happen a number of ways. Bad theology creeps in, causing division and harm to the saints. Sin is ignored and tolerated. Or formality of religious behavior is just has become the norm. There isn't really genuine worship. And so, friends, one of the things that we need to recognize is, first of all, just to be aware that there's opposition from outside, which is often where our focus is. But we also need to be aware of the opposition, not just of within the church, but within our own hearts. In chapter 2, if you remember, 
the, 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 the newly formed group, still 120, gather together and they see a concern in their midst. And it's not a sinful concern. It's a concern that they need to, they need to have another apostle to make up the 12. And so they pray together and they're worshiping together and they're fellowshipping together. It's a wonderful picture solving the problem. This is what's happening within the body. And then, of course, we have the things that are happening outside the body. And certainly as the church begins to, begins to make progress, we know that Satan is always going to be there trying to undermine what God is doing. So within a few days now, what we find is spiritual compromise within the church. And we also realize from our text today that spiritual compromise and God's response to it is nothing to be trifled with. God takes it seriously. Yes, He wants us to respond by faith to the external opposition. And friends, over the past couple of years, we might have felt as a church or as Christians, opposition coming from the world. And that may be true. But God was also concerned about the hearts of his people. And sometimes we neglect our own sinful behavior. We feel justified because we're speaking about those that are opposing the church. And God is just as concerned about our hearts in dealing with those who are outside the church. He's concerned about what's inside the church as well. And one of the things that's beautiful, friends, is that Luke is realistic. He's very honest about the church. And we ought to be thankful for that. He's not just presenting the good bits. He's presenting the hard bits, the raw bits. And so this is what our text is about. It's about spiritual compromise that takes place in the early church, and how God responds to it. So our proposition this morning is this. God's dangerous response to spiritual compromise within his grace-filled church. I mean, he's already established that his church is full of grace. But he also wants to see how he responds to spiritual compromise. It is a dangerous response. And what's the fruit then of God's response? And it comes up in two words, great fear. If great grace and great power characterize the church in our previous passage, so does the presence of great fear characterize the church in our present passage. We've seen how God's great grace is channeled through his church in great power, but now We will encounter spiritual compromise in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira and how God deals with them, and that will result in great fear. And it's stated clearly in verses 5 and 11. Notice what it says. Verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's also implied in verse 13 where it says none of the rest, that would be the unbelieving people, dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. In other words, those who were unbelievers who heard about how God dealt with this kind of behavior in the church, they had respect, but so much respect, they didn't want to come somehow get involved in that and have their own sin exposed and have the same kind of thing happen to them. Great fear. So let's Think, first of all, by the, about the reason for great fear. And friends, in the previous passage, we saw three marks of a grace-filled church, if you remember. 
We saw grace for unity. We saw grace for ministry. And we saw grace for generosity. Followed by this wonderful example by the name of Joseph, also known as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He was a wealthy man. He saw some needs that were uh, present in the church and he sold a piece of property and he brings it to the apostles so that they could distribute it how they saw fit. He was a great encouragement to the church, truly a son of encouragement. He was a positive example. But now what we have in verses 11 and following is quite the opposite. It's a negative example, a comparison, so to speak, to hold alongside Barnabas. And friends, you can be sure that when things are going well in the church, Satan is looking for various ways to get in and to stir up problems. If the opposition from outside isn't having the right effect, then Satan will look to undermine the church by causing some difficulty or problems or sin to kind of uh, arise within the church. And unfortunately, too often, he will find willing participants in giving in to his temptations. And those willing participants are all of us who are sitting in this room. Now, you see in this passage two people, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias means the Lord is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful. But what we find in this passage is that the behavior of Ananias and Sapphira is neither beautiful nor is it gracious. Their names betray their character. But they were rich, and like Barnabas, they owned property, and they wanted to do something to have a good reputation. They wanted to help, but they also wanted something alongside with that. Unlike Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Ananias and Sapphira would leave the sad legacy of being the son and daughter of spiritual hypocrisy. Now, what we want to do next is we want to consider what they did and why God is not pleased with their choices. So let's begin here by looking at this heading, the reason for great fear, and the first point, that's the sin that they committed in verses 1 and 2. Now, what did Ananias and Sapphira do that brought such a harsh response from God? Well, Luke uses the same three words that he used to describe what Barnabas did. They sold their property, just like Barnabas, right? They brought the proceeds, just like Barnabas did. They laid the the, the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, just like Barnabas had done. But there was one glaring difference. And it's two words. Together they kept back some of the proceeds and brought only part of it. So what is the sin that is being committed here? Well, first of all, I would describe it this way. It is the sin of misrepresentation. They gave the appearance of donating the full sale of the price when in fact they were knowingly donating only a portion of the sale price. Secondly, we could say it's the sin of hypocrisy, pretending to be generous when, in fact, they were really wanting the accolades of being generous. It's a big difference. They wanted all the benefits of godliness without the generosity that comes with godliness. Or to put it differently, they tried to purchase the reputation of godliness at a discounted price. Now, the Greek word translated kept back is a word 
that is, is often used in this way, to steal or to pilfer. Now, they were not stealing or pilfering money. The money is not the point here. There was something far more important or far greater for them. They were attempting to steal a godly reputation by misrepresenting themselves before the community. Now, why does Barnabas have to be the only one who gets the accolades? It's always Barnabas this and Barnabas that. And did you see what Barnabas did? And isn't Barnabas such a, a man of encouragement? Why can't, why can't we get the same kind of accolades? Well, we can if we give the proceeds from our property. But you know, let's give the proceeds from our property, but let's, let's not give all of them. I mean, we can, we can probably have needs of our own. We can say we're justified in keeping it. So let's, let's give it and, and give people the impression that we're being as generous as Barnabas. See, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the proceeds. It was about a heart that desired the reputation that Barnabas had. That's the sin that they committed. Let's consider now the sin God exposed. God, through his apostle Peter, steps in to do some heart surgery now for the benefit and the health of his community of believers. First of all, Ananias is confronted. And Peter first confronts him and he says, Ananias, this was your property to sell. You didn't have to sell it. No one was forcing you to do it. And once you sold the property, the money was yours to do with as you saw fit. No one has, has, has coerced you to lay it at my feet. So why did you contrive this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And friends, just as we began our church service this morning, it's important for us to realize that this text is screaming at us, saying that their sin at its core was an issue of the heart. Way before it was a behavior problem, it was a heart problem. That, that, that birthed the seed, so to speak, to want to do something to have the accolades that they would have. The, the Bible presents man as having two parts, a physical body that can, you know, that can see, that can touch, that can feel, and you might want to say the, the, the heart, the, the immaterial uh, part of us. In other words, other words that are used to describe the heart in the Bible are words like mind and soul and spirit and inner man. They're all nuances of that immaterial part, the, the, the heart, Okay. The heart thinks, the heart decides, the heart argues. And what the scriptures teach is that the heart is our grand central station. Every thought, every intention, every behavior, every attitude finds its source in the heart. And so we look at a couple of passages where Jesus is speaking and he says in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And it's important for us to see here that the speaking takes place after the heart has pondered. It's just revealed by what is being said. And then we have Matthew 15, 
where we're told here, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are all issues of the heart. A murderer doesn't go out and just somehow, oh, I think I'm going to murder today. He doesn't just murder without thinking. It's happening in the heart. There's a reason why he's doing what he's doing. You just go through that list and you can say, something is happening in the heart of the individual. So what, what do we find Peter saying as he initially confronts Ananias? He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Peter is exposing how Satan works by tempting Christ's followers to sin in their hearts. And the fruit of that sin is wicked and hypocritical behavior. But that behavior began in the heart. Now, friends, this is so important for us to see the true condition of our hearts. As Ed began this morning, this is what we want to teach our children. It's not just behavior that matters. It's what happens in your heart that matters. So Ananias is confronted. Now, Sapphira is confronted. Three hours later, she comes and Peter confronts her with the same questions, maybe in some different format, but essentially the same thing. Did you sell the property for so much? So basically the same question. And she says, yes. Then Peter asks, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Now, friends, the truth of the matter is that in, in the general scheme of things, Ananias and Sapphira had misrepresented themselves to their fellow men, but ultimately their sin was not that they lied to man, but to God. They had lied to the Holy Spirit. They had agreed together to test the Holy Spirit. And hear this, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Friends, there's an echo of what King David said in Psalm 51, which is his psalm of repentance after he had committed sin with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. He says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, against you, speaking about God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you know the story. David sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah, against his own people. But in the grander scheme of things, that sin was against God, and he knew it. And so, friends, your sin against your fellow man is ultimately against God. Hear this. When you're angry at the behavior of your children, you're sinning against God. When you are getting jealous of your co-worker's promotion, you're sinning against God. When you covet your neighbor's nice car, their remodeled kitchen, or their green grass and healthy bushes. You're sinning against God. When you're yelling rage-filled words at the driver who cut you off, you're sinning against God. Yes, you were certainly sinning against them, but ultimately you're sinning against God. God. And friends, we we need to be reminded of that reality and the seriousness of that reality. So what does this sin look like in our context, the sin of misrepresentation or hypocrisy? Well, I've come up with three just to kind of flesh it out a little bit. Um, Number one, 
giving others the impression that we are people of prayer when we're not. And we do that, when we do that, we're trying to gain spiritual brownie points before our fellow man. You ever done that before? We're talking about prayer, and well, you know, I pray a couple times a day, you know, usually, you know, you know. and you know full well you're not doing any of that. Here's another one, very similar, giving others the impression that we are diligent in our personal devotions in the Word of God when we are not. Someone asks you, hey, so tell me, what are you reading for your own personal devotions? And you find yourself scrambling for an answer to ward them off because you know you've been failing in that spiritual discipline. And so you say something like, well, what I usually do is I open up Proverbs, you know, because there's a chapter for every day of the month. And, and so that's, I do that. And then sometimes I'll jump to a psalm. And you know you're just giving them a whole bunch of nonsense. And they respond, oh, that's great. So what did you learn today? It is November 7th. So you must have been reading Proverbs 7. And so you say, well, it is Sunday. And I don't usually have my devotions until the afternoon. I mean, you see what's going on here, right? You're more concerned about being seen in the right light with your fellow men than you are about being honest about your failure in that particular area. Or how about this one? Giving the impression that we have it all together when we do not. And I realize not everyone that's going to ask you a question, how are you doing today, do you want to kind of spill the beans? But sometimes when people come along and they say, hey man, it's good to see you. How is everything going in your life? And this is a person that you know, that you fellowship with. And you know that it's been a really tough week. You've been repeatedly arguing with your wife. Your children are growing more and more disobedient. You've been struggling to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, your boss is not happy with you because you've neglected to do some key things that need to get done. And so you hold your big fat Bible and you put on your good Colgate smile and you say, Hey, brother, everything's great. I am just happy as I can be. And it's all a lie. You're not being truthful. You're not being honest. Now, friends, the truth of the matter is you don't want them to see your pain, your heartache, your failure, because it will expose your sinful and struggling heart. So you lie, and you are just trying to save face to gain some spiritual brownie points before your fellow man. Friends, we can so easily think and behave like Ananias and Sapphira. We are not that far removed from them. We're more concerned about what other people, well, they were more concerned about what other people thought about them than what God thought about them. They were more concerned about having the appearance of godliness rather than the sincere hearts from which godliness springs. They were more concerned about grasping their money than serving the saints. And friends, what is often lacking in our hearts is honesty, humility, and authenticity. We're so full of pride, wanting others to see us as being spiritually mature that we're willing to give in to temptation to spiritual compromise, to misrepresent, to be hypocritical. 
Now hear this, please. Spiritual compromise is never the path towards spiritual maturity. Spiritual compromise is never the path towards spiritual maturity. If you want to look good in front of your people, that is not going to get you to spiritual maturity. Spiritual compromise is never the path toward genuine, grace-filled fellowship in the body of Christ. You can fool people for a while, but you can never fool God. And when we are dishonest with one another, when we are misrepresenting ourselves to other people, when we are hypocritical because we're claiming to be something that we're not, then we end up not having the kind of depth of intimacy that makes a healthy church beautiful. We all know that we're messed up. We all know that we have struggles. And God certainly knows that. Now hear this. God is omniscient, which is a big word that means he sees everything and he knows everything. And the fact that God is all-knowing is a two-edged sword. It's wonderful on one side, the fact that God knows all about us, our trials, our struggles, our difficulties, our obstacles. It's comforting and encouraging. But on the other side, he knows everything about us our sinful thoughts, our intentions, our acts. And it makes us very uncomfortable. He knows what we're thinking, the sin in our hearts. He's not fooled by our outward actions. He knows the sinfulness of our hearts. This is what Psalm 139, uh, verses 7 and following says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The reality is you and I cannot escape the comforting and uncomfortable gaze of God. He's omniscient. He knows what's in our heart. And friends, Ananias and Sapphira had the freedom to sell their property and to hold some of the proceeds back for themselves. There was, there was no problem with that. They could have done that. And clearly, there was a much better way for them to respond and to move forward. Ananias could have said something like this, Peter, I want you to know that I and my wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property with every intention of giving all the proceeds to help the church in particular to help some of the needs of the saints who are going through some difficult times. We wanted to do just what Barnabas did. He was a great example to us, but we just don't feel that we can can give the whole amount at this time because we have some particular needs that we're facing right now. Now, what I'm trying to point out here is there's an honesty about that because no one was saying you have to behave this way. No one was saying you have to give this. And maybe your intention was to, to be motivated by the example of of Barnabas, but instead, what do they do? They misrepresent themselves to get the accolades of godliness. God simply wants us to be honest. You say that you struggle with your prayer life? Well, look around this room. We all are going to say, you know what? We have times and seasons or regularly struggle with our 
prayer life. We, we want it to be better than it is. You say you, you've drifted away from a consistent time of devotion in the Word. Yes, we've struggled with that too, haven't we? You say you're having a rough week as a father, as a husband, as an employee. Been there, done that. What you need is not to impress those that are around you that you are a mature Christian. What you need is to be honest and humble and authentic about your struggles and to allow your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to minister to you and encourage you. And friends, one of the issues that's been heavy on the church is the issue of performance. And if if we cultivate a, a, a community where performance is the issue, it becomes bondage. And we cannot be truthful and honest and authentic with one another. Now, obviously, we need to be careful about who we're talking to and what we're talking about and the kind of things that come out in conversations. But but there needs to be this wonderful place of authenticity among brothers and sisters in Christ because we fail, we struggle, and yet we want to serve our great God and Savior. And this is what he's called us to be as a church. And that, friends, the reality is that all of us here in this auditorium or who are at home watching this through live stream, all of us are guilty of the same sin that Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of. We've all been guilty of misrepresenting the quality of our faithfulness to God in our spiritual walk. We're all guilty. And if God were to deal with us as he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, there would be very few people in church. And friends, we've seen that they committed sin. We've seen that the sin that God has exposed. Now we want to see the sin that God judged. The sin that God judged. Now just let the words of verses 5 and 6 and 10 through 11 sink in as we read them. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 10. And immediately she, Sapphira, fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Friends, God is holy, and he cannot abide sin in his church. And when he exercises judgment on sin, hear this, he is always perfect and just in his judgment. His wrath against sin is fully justified because man is guilty. And it might be hard for us to read the story or to imagine what's going on. And so in our hearts, we may say things like, well, isn't God a God of love and forgiveness? How can he be so cruel to take the lives of two individuals for what appears to be a small sin? This seems rather over the top, even for God. But friends, it may be that we have forgotten the true nature of of God and the magnificence of his gospel. God is holy and we are not. And because God is holy, he cannot and he will not wink or be cavalier at 
or be carefree with our sin. No, it must be judged. And friends, if God responds to opposition to the church from outside with laughter and anger, which is what we saw last week, then God responds to opposition from within the church with a dangerous holiness that confronts and judges spiritual compromise. And you can be sure that God will deal with sin. He deals with sin in salvation, and he deals with it in sanctification. Let's look at each of those together. In salvation, God deals with the eternal consequences of our sin. Jesus bore God's wrath on our behalf, and that's why we read 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says this, For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in salvation, God deals with the eternal consequences of sin. In sanctification, now that we're believers, God deals with the earthly consequences of sin in order to restore us. And this can come in a number of different forms. There's three that came to my mind. First one is discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. We have this picture of a father who's disciplining his son. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God is loving with us to discipline us for our restoration. Secondly, there are natural consequences. As a loving father, God will allow us to feel the weight of our sinful choices by delivering us over to Satan. This is what happens when we we go through church discipline. You have four steps of church discipline, one-on-one, and the goal is repentance and restoration, right? Then you have two or three-on-one, Again, the goal is restoration. Then it's tell it to the church. And then the final one is treat this person as a publican and a sinner. In other words, treat them like they're unbelievers. Now, they're not unbelievers, but they're now supposed to be put outside of the church, which means they are not benefiting from the protection of the church. And what that means is that they have to live with the natural consequences of their sin without the church's protection. Friends, that's not a place that you and I want to be in. But this is what a loving God does. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Here's Paul speaking about someone who committed sin in the church. He says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Discipline, natural consequences, for the goal of restoration. The final one is death. We have this here in our text. Sometimes the consequences for disobedience in the camp is death. Now I want to suggest to you that Ananias and Sapphira are both new believers, having come to faith through the apostles' gospel witness, but new believers are still vulnerable 
to the temptation of sin. Satan filled their hearts. And understand this, what we have in the book of Acts is this wonderful gospel reality that's coming and people are getting converted. And what happens? The Holy Spirit is filling people's hearts. And now we say, well, Satan is filling their hearts. In other words, what they're saying is, you know what? We've allowed the temptation of Satan now to have control of our hearts to do these things when we should be functioning under the the guidance and the control of the Holy Spirit. You can't blame Satan for their sin. It certainly has a place there, but Ananias and Sapphira are, are guilty because they have chosen to pursue what Satan put in their heart to do. Now, friends, what if something similar happened today? Can you imagine somewhere here in the United States, Sunday morning, a pastor of a church is preaching and he's preaching a false gospel to the church. And just as he lays out this false gospel, he falls over dead. God judged him for spreading false teaching. What would that do to the congregation? How would we respond? What if our band introduced a song that was full of distorted and deceptive theology. And they start getting up and start you know, leading the song. Okay, let's sing this. And as they're singing this distorted theology, they all just go flop on the floor. They just die on the spot because God cannot abide sin in his church. God has the freedom to do that, friends, and he would be just in doing that. What would we do? How would it affect us? Well, likely it would affect us the same way that people were affected in this text. Great fear came upon all who heard of it, and great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things, we're told. The idea of great fear in this passage is not to view God with reverential awe. That's not the point here. It is to be shaken to our core, knowing that if such a thing could happen to Ananias and Sapphira, then surely it could happen to me. There's a fear of God that is weighty, friends. It is to be confronted with the just and righteousness, the righteous holiness of God who hates sin and must judge sinners. Now, if you reflect on this story, you will notice that Peter asks Ananias and Sapphira a number of questions. You could actually boil down with Ananias six questions, each designed to give Ananias opportunity to respond in repentance. And God probes our hearts by coming to us through a sermon that is being preached, through a song that's being sung, through a testimony of a brother or sister in Christ, through a theological prayer that you might hear, or maybe some other way. But God comes and he's, each time he's giving us an opportunity while we're in our sin to repent, to listen to humble ourselves, to be authentic and honest before him. And we must remember that God is always for our restoration. For some reason, in the church, people have have created a picture of God as a God that's just angry and he hates. But his judgment against sin is a judgment that has as its heart and its goal our 
restoration. And friends, it's so important for us to see that. So God is not angry with you in such a way that he just wants to be angry and he wants to beat you because of your sin. He is angry at sin and he judges sin for the benefit of your soul. Sadly, too often, we are entrenched in believing that our sin is no big deal because it's been paid for, that God will just overlook what I'm doing when in fact you may be the recipient of God's grace for eternity, but you will be the recipient of his dangerous holiness while you are still on this earth. And that's because he's for your restoration. Friends, the sin of spiritual compromise is so serious that the first recorded burial in the Christian community is due to God's judgment of two hypocrites. And here at the birth of the church, God wanted to make it clear that he will not tolerate spiritual compromise in the church. It's a sobering passage, isn't it? But I want you to notice what happens next. The results of great fear. They're not going to spend a lot of time here. This is a summary passage, but it's, it comes on the heels or it comes in the context of what's been going on here. Uh, verses 12 through 16 here, we move from the reason for great fear to the results of great fear. What God does with his church, with Ananias and Sapphira, is purposeful. Now, this is a summary passage, but what we find here is that great grace and great power and great generosity, which we saw at the beginning of the text, and great fear, all of them work together to guide the church toward fruitful ministry. And in these verses, I want us to note five, five just brief marks or results of God's grace-filled or fear-filled church, a church that has experienced both the powerful, God's powerful grace and God's dangerous holiness. First of all, there's an ongoing witness. Now, many signs and wonders regularly were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. They kept on carrying out their mission to spread the gospel. There's a continuing fellowship. They were all together in Solomon's portico. That's where, they, that's where they were gathering, still at the temple. And God's grace and judgment didn't split the church, but it maintained the unity of the church. Hey, pastor, if you start practicing church discipline in your church, you know you're going to split the church. Well, what you're saying is that the disgruntled people are going to get upset. The sinful people are going to get upset. No, exercising church discipline unifies the church around the gospel when it's done in the right way. Third, it's a community respect. In other words, none of the rest of, of the community dare join them. I take the rest here, the people, to be referring to unbelievers that heard about God's dealings with Ananias and Sapphira. They are, they are respectful of this Christian community because of their unity, their fellowship, and their generosity. They've heard about that, but they're also respectful because of God's holiness. And then we have this Fruitful revival. And more than ever, did you catch that? More than ever, so far, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes. You wouldn't expect that after this, would you? Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick in the streets and laid them on the cots and mats as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
And then there's this spreading hope. Remember, the, the mission was to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And what we find here is the people gathered from towns around Jerusalem. So they're coming in now, bringing sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And, and they were all healed. And remember, all this healing is a means to actually proclaim and spread the gospel because these people would go back to their towns now, not only having family members who were healed, but souls now who have been reunited and brought into the family of God. Satan has been thwarted once again. Persecution from outside and spiritual compromise from within will never hinder God's ultimate mission. And friends, this is so important for us to see. We have to deal with sin in the church. We do our best with the opposition that is outside the church. But we can be sure that God is not like, oh, what am I going to do? There's sin in the church. No, God is going to deal with that, and his mission will continue on. He is the sovereign God who predestines all that he desires to do. Where am I coming up with that? Chapter 4 says it very clearly. Now, having said all that, let's just bring this down to a close. Three concluding thoughts. Just want to make sure that we understand the greater picture. I took two, two Sundays now working with this text, but it's really one unit. And it begins with this whole idea of generosity in chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Then we have the example, the wonderful example of Barnabas. Then we have this really bad example of Ananias and Sapphira. And then at the end here, we have this wonderful summary how the church is continuing on. We have the son of encouragement. We have the daughter, son and daughter of hypocrisy. Just with all that in mind, we're gleaning from all this. Here's three things that, that hopefully we can, we can chew on as we leave today. Three needs that we must address as God's people. Number one, our need for self-confrontation. Friends, God calls us to allow the Holy Spirit to do heart surgery through his revealed word. You know Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, or verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we must realize both the importance and the privilege we have to allow God to probe our hearts through his revealed word so that our sin may be exposed and we can be restored and we can grow in our maturity. The apostle James describes the word of God as a mirror that reflects back to us God's assessment of our spiritual condition. And we must welcome the Holy Spirit's counsel to us for he is present to help us put off the old man and put on the new man by renewing us in the spirit of our minds. In other words, changing our heart orientation. And friends, that is especially true in how we approach the Lord's Supper, isn't it? I just want you to, 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 to draw with me here as, as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or chapter 11. I want you to hear what Paul says in preparation in correcting some things that were happening in the church there. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, right? That's that self-confrontation. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks 
judgment on himself. See, God's concerned here about the heart, not just the behavior, not just the ceremony. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have, what? Died. Don't mess around with the Lord's Supper, friends. That's what he's saying. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Look, God wants us to do this self-confrontation to expose our hearts so that we will come before him in honesty, in humility, in authenticity. But we need the Lord's Supper more than we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if that makes any sense. Secondly, not only our need for self-confrontation, but our need for God's provision. God has not just called the church to carry out his mission to be witnesses without his help. What this text tells us is that God is actively at work making provision for us. He guides us and shapes us and empowers us by his holiness and grace. Holiness and grace always work together in tandem. They don't just stand alone. The grace of God is is amazing and wonderful. The holiness of God is pure and brilliant. And the church's tendency has been to champion one over the other, but we would do well to keep them in balance and be thinking of them in this way, to, to meditate on God's magnificent holiness and therefore be overcome by our sinfulness. Right? Not to think, you know, greater than we are. Secondly, to marinate, marinate then in God's abundant grace and be overcome by God's forgiveness. This is the balance we need. We are sinful people saved by grace. And the reason we're sinful is because God is holy. The reason we're forgiven is because of God's grace. So they all, they go together. We need that provision to fuel us for the things he's called us to. Finally, our need for theological reflection. That simply means that we need to reflect on who God is. God is holy. God is omniscient. God is sovereign. God is ordering things that are happening in this world. He hasn't made a mistake by putting you in California in 2021. He hasn't made a mistake. You're here for a reason. So God is sovereign. And and, and as we reflect over him, we need to ask ourselves some question. How is it that sinful people can stand before him? How can I, an unworthy sinner, ever approach God? But we come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And again, as Peter kind of helped us this morning, I want to I read the lyrics of the song that we sang because we're going to finish up with the song. And I, I hope this will settle in your heart the power of, of what is being said in this poem, which is now put into a song. This is from Praise the Savior. All my sin was so contagious, all my failings so outrageous, says the Savior, I will pay this. I was lost once, full of hate then, 
if he left us, who could blame him? I mean, he didn't have to come and rescue us. He's just in condemning us, says the Savior. I will claim them. I will claim them. Such a freedom. Who could earn this? Who could pay for this forgiveness? Says the Savior. It is finished. Now the treasure of my whole life. I will stand soon by your own side. In other words, talking about being present with Christ. Says the Savior. Welcome home, child. Praise the Savior. Jesus. To delight in the Lord is to see God as he really is, holy and full of grace. And it is to see ourselves as we really are, sinful and full of hypocrisy, but rescued, reconciled, and restored by God through Christ. Help us, Lord, today to ponder the reality of our own sinfulness but lord at the same time to be in awe of your wonderful and majestic grace we are all guilty of spiritual compromise lord And we come to you now. I'm just praying corporately, Lord. We come to you now asking for your forgiveness. Lord, may our hearts right now be reminded of the sin that we keep undoing in spite of your counsel and proddings. May the Holy Spirit be convicting us, Lord, in those areas. And through that conviction, Lord, may we come in our hearts to you and say, Lord, forgive me. I repent of that sin. And I bathe myself in the waters of your grace and forgiveness. Thank you for loving me enough to confront me with my ongoing sin. Lord, help us to be honest, to be humble and authentic before you. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.